one, what do you stand for? I want to start this series off really setting up the days of Elijah. And I'm not sure if this is going to be an hour message or a 30-minute message, probably more like an hour knowing me. Look, someone's already laughing at me. But we've got to know about the kind of days that Elijah is in. So I'm going to take some time going through a little bit through 1 Kings to set you up for what the climate looks like. Well, after King David died, guess who took over as king? It was his son. Who was it? Solomon. King Solomon reigned, and after King Solomon's death, the kingdom of Israel was actually divided into two groups. It was divided into the northern tribes and the southern tribes. The northern tribes became known as the kingdom of Israel, and the southern tribes became known as the kingdom of, anybody know? Judah. Very good. Kingdom of Israel, kingdom of Judah. And really, that's not too far off from the divided nation that we're in right now. You know, they're, they're, it's like you're, you're this side or that side, and if, and, and if you're not, it's like you're horrible and the people are going against each other, right? It's really a, a picture of what's going on in the world. Everyone's being divided by their personal thoughts and, and really what they're standing for. The world is completely divided. Elisha's story begins by him appearing in the middle of a time when Israel had been governed by numerous kings. And several of those kings were just plain evil. They were just no good. God was very troubled with the people, with, with, with what the people were experiencing. And I actually want to read some of these passages before we even introduce Elijah because it's important to understand the state of the nation. You see, King Asa had reigned in Judah for about a total of 41 years. And we find this out about Asa in 1 Kings chapter 15. Look at verses 11 through 15. Asa did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, as his ancestor David had done. He banished the male and female shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his ancestors had made. That's pretty good. I think that would be a good thing to happen maybe in America right now. Let's get rid of the idols. Right? We'll get into that a little bit more. But he got rid of all the idols. He even uh, deposed his grandmother, Maka, from her position as queen mother because she had, been she had made an obscene Asherah pole. Now, I'm going to get into this a little bit later too, but the Asherah pole was actually a way to worship the goddess Asherah. Okay? So he removed his own family from position because she was making all these obscene things to worship something other than God, something other than Yahweh, something other than the God that we know. He cut down her obscene pole and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Although the pagan shrines were not removed, Asa, because one man can only do so much, Asa's heart remained completely faithful to the Lord throughout his life. He brought into the temple of the Lord the silver and the gold and the various items that he and his father had dedicated. The dude was faithful to God, and he tried to help restore what was right and demolishing what wasn't. It's a pretty good posture to take, right? Keep what's right, demolish what wasn't. Well, what was not right? Well, during these 40 years of reign, you've got seven kings of Israel in the midst of King, uh, uh, of King Asa's reign. You had King Jer Jeroboam, you had King Basha, King Nadab, King Elah, King Zimri, King Omni, and King Ahab. Okay? And that's pretty good, right? Well, King Jeroboam was known for some really awful things. Some of y'all nodding like y'all been reading up on this or like y'all know a lot of this. That's good. King Jeroboam was known for some terrible things. And the reason he was known for these terrible things, the reason he did these terrible things, because with a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, he was scared of losing his kingdom. He was scared of losing all the glory, all the honor, all the fame, all the credit. And a lot of times when you get in a position where you're scared to lose what's yours, you will do anything, including putting God second, last, or even getting him out in order to get your way. And this is exactly what he was doing. He was scared that he was going to lose his kingdom and his position. So look what he did in 1 Kings 12, 28. 
on the advice of his counselors, the king made two golden calves. Mm. He said to the people, it's too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem. Now, they went to Jerusalem to go to the temple of Yahweh God. So he says, y'all, it's too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem. Look, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. He placed these calf idols in Bethel and in Dan and at either end of his kingdom. But this became a great sin for the people worshipped the idols traveling as far north as Dan to worship the one there. Jeroboam has turned away from God and he's making idols to remind the people of their exit out of Egypt. He's saying, y'all remember how hard it was? Do y'all remember the exit? Do y'all remember getting out of bondage? Do you remember getting out of slavery? So he says, it's just way too hard for you to travel to church. You know what? With this disease, don't come to church. Watch a computer. Is that too much? I know. He says, you know what? Let's make it easy for you. And the way I'm going to make it easy is somehow convince you that this form of worship, remembering what God did, is just as good with you actually coming to the temple to worship God. So let's worship these idols. You see what he's doing? He's convincing the people little by little, you're going to worship God by worshiping something else. And it really has become what the church is all about. We don't really, maybe us, hopefully, but really on the church as a whole, people don't really come to worship God. They come to hear great music and an inspiring message. And you can tell worship is not in their mind because nothing changes about them when they come into his presence. And maybe they don't change because his presence ain't really there. I don't know. But people are not changing. They come for the product. They come for the good stuff. They come for the, the, the example of something that reminds them of God, but nothing in their worship is actually about God. Right? You get more applause after the song saying, good job, band, than actually giving God praise. Right? We hear more about how great the preacher was than how the word transformed the life. It's an issue when we hear more about big name preachers than Yahweh God. Right? He's made these idols and he's convincing the people of his kingdom, worship the idols, don't travel to Jerusalem like the Lord told you to do. Don't go to the temple like the Lord. I know it's too far. I know it's inconvenient. So I'm going to make something very convenient for you to make you feel like you're doing the right thing. You see, there's a few things going on here right at the back. The first thing is that there was absolutely no unity in Judah and Jerusalem. You see, there's a separation happening among the people of God. And when there's separation, it's easy to focus on the separation and not the God of everyone involved. You see, when separation happens, when, when, when you have a reason as to why to divide, we focus on the divide and we don't focus on the God of who can take care of the divide. We focus on the president and not the God who can take care of us no matter what. We focus on political parties thinking that God is limited to one or the other. We, we, we love to focus on the thing that separates. But it's hard for us for some reason to focus on God and that's exactly what's going on. They weren't focused on God. They were focused on we can't go to Jerusalem in our minds because they don't like us anymore. So they forsake the gathering of the saints for their personal stuff. Comfort, convenience. The other thing is when you fear things other than God, it's easy to find ways to replace your worship. Because if you don't fear God, you fear those things. 
So Jeroboam starts to look for a way to sustain him, not God. He's no longer looking to any sort of God that, that he has heard about, the God of all. He's not looking for that. He's, how can I get my kingdom established by giving people what they want to worship? And that's exactly what's going on in the state of our nation, the state of our world. You spend more time making a decision about what to buy than understanding who God is. We, sp we have more relationship with Amazon than intercession. It's an issue when we spend more time figuring out how to spend our money than to worship God. Because we begin to fear what will happen if we don't choose this thing. So we no longer turn to God. We start to have this obsession with this thing. And this is what exactly what Jeroboam's doing. He's like, I don't want to lose my influence. I don't want to lose my position. So I'm going to create dependence from the people on what I have to offer. And what I have to offer is not God. I've got to offer two golden calves. What has the church done? When the church starts to dip, when the church starts to fail, we don't turn to God. We start to figure out what can we put in front of the people to catch their eye. And we strategize. And we start to say, how can I get you to come back to this kingdom that I'm trying to build? Instead of understanding that maybe God is trying to tear down your kingdom to establish his you know, when we, when, we, when we made a transition at Relentless a few, a few years ago, we, we went to this small facility, took out every leader, had no positions except Pastor Kyle, and everyone went with it because we realized something was trying to be built that wasn't what he wanted. So instead of trying to restore something that wasn't his, we just cut the whole tree down and said, let's start from the seeds. And look what's happened since then, right? And sometimes you, you, you've got to realize that I don't want my kingdom or my way. I want his, and I'm not going to put a golden calf to make us feel like that we are in riches and glory and we're in the presence. But that's exactly what Jeroboam's doing. Let me get you focused on something that reminds you of your past life. Does this make sense? It looks like something of God, but it's not. The third thing going on is that people love to trade hard for convenient. And it often results in you being alienated from God because you made a choice to worship the God of convenience. Like, like the, the, the Bible says there's power in the body. And we think we can trade the body for internet campuses. You need more than your family at your home. But we don't like to see that because the golden calf of convenience is more appealing. Y'all quiet. We love anything that will replace the heart. We love to replace anything that requires any sort of effort or sacrifice. And before you know it, he puts these idols in Bethel and Dan, and the people were actually on their way to start worshiping Baal. Because they didn't want to go to Jerusalem to the temple because some Christians might not like them. I'm not ready to go to church because I don't like people. Well, God says, you never have a reason to separate. God says, this is my way. This is what I want for you. And get over yourself and stand for me and not your likes, not your opinions, and not what speaks to you. You're going to have to sacrifice some things. You're going to have to come to a place that might not be comfortable. But I've got things for you in this place. And he's convincing all these people to come 
because he didn't want people to give allegiance to any other king or any other kingdom but him. So the people start to worship this false god. Well, during his reign, is this okay? During his reign, Jeroboam's son got sick. And he decided, well, I'm going to send my wife to talk to the prophet who prophesied that I'd be king. So let's, let's make sure we set up this right. Jeroboam was not a mistake. He was meant to be king, but he chose what to do with his kingship. You were meant to reign in your house, but you choose how to reign in your house. You're meant to be at your workplace, but how do you represent God in your workplace when you don't want to represent God? Jeroboam was a mistake, but he started making some decisions because it became all about, I built this. I did this. Let me protect me. Let me protect my ways. Let me protect my work. So Jeroboam goes to the prophet who prophesied, yeah, you're going to be king. And he told his wife, I want you to disguise yourself because I don't want him to know who you are. So this is what happens in 1 Kings 14. This is the story. At that time, Jeroboam's son, Jeroboam's son Abisha, sure, became very sick. We're going to call him Abi, okay? Abi became very sick. Y'all laugh at me. I went to Groves, Mercer, all right? <laughs> so Jeroboam told his wife, Disguise yourself so that no one will recognize you as my wife. Probably because he knew that people didn't like him. He didn't want his wife to, you know, like die. Then go to the prophet Ahijah at Shiloh, the man who told me I'd become king. Take him a gift. When people bring you gifts, you better watch out for them. They always want something. It's one thing to honor someone with a gift, but look at what he does. Give him ten loaves of bread, some cakes, a jar of honey. I mean, he just, he gets all the good stuff. Ask him what will happen to the boy. So Jeroboam's wife went to Ahi's home at Shiloh. He was an old man now, and he could no longer see. That's funny. Hey, disguise yourself to go see the blind man. <laughs> but, the, but the Lord told Ahi, the Lord will always reveal. Isn't it funny he was trying to trick a prophet? Let me trick the prophet who told me I was going. The dude talks to God. So look what he does. The, the Lord told Ahi, Jeroboam's wife will come here pretending to be someone else. She'll ask you about her son for he's very sick. Give her the answer that I give you. That's scary. So when Ahi heard her footsteps at the door, this blind man called out, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. <laughs> Why are you pretending to be someone else? And then he told her, I've got bad news for you. Now remember, this is what the Lord told him to say. Give your husband, Jeroboam, this message from the Lord, the God of Israel. I, promote, I promoted you. Make no mistake, the reason you got where you were is because of God. It ain't by you alone. Just because you're skilled to do it, don't forget the one who gave you the skill. Don't forget that he was the one who got someone to open their eyes to your skill. Okay? I, I promoted you from the ranks, of the ranks of the common people and made you ruler over my people Israel. I ripped the kingdom away from the family of David and gave it to you, but you have not been like my servant David who obeyed my commands, followed me with all his heart, always did whatever I wanted. You've done more evil than all who've lived before you. You've made other gods for yourself and have made me furious with those two stupid golden calves. That's the, that's the Kyle Garrison standard version. And since you've turned your back on me, I'm going to bring disaster on your dynasty and I'm going to destroy every one of your male descendants. Now, why did he come to the prophet? Why did she come to the prophet? Their son is sick. I'm going to destroy every one of your male descendants, slave and free alike, anywhere in Israel. I'll burn up your royal dynasty as one burns up trash until it's all gone. This is a word you don't want to get in church. 
The members of Jeroboam's family who die in the city will be eaten by dogs, and those who die in the field will be eaten by vultures. I, the Lord, have spoken. Can you imagine Jeroboam's wife? She's got to go back and tell her husband all this. Mm. And then Ozzy said to Jeroboam's wife, Go on home. When you enter the city, the child will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He's the only member of your family who will have a proper burial. For this child is the only good thing that the Lord, the, uh, only good thing that the Lord, the God of Israel, sees in the entire family of Jeroboam. You have to wonder if he's the only good thing that he saw. Why did he let him die? Probably to spare him. In addition, the Lord will raise up a king over Israel who will destroy the family of Jeroboam. This will happen today, even now, and then the Lord will shake Israel like a reed whipped about in a stream. He'll uproot the people of Israel from his good land that he gave their ancestors and will scatter them beyond the Euphrates River. For they've angered the Lord with the Asherah poles they set up for worship. He will abandon Israel because Jeroboam sinned and made Israel sin along with him. So Jeroboam's wife returned to Tursa. The child died just as she walked through the door of her home. All of Israel buried him, mourned for him, as the Lord had promised through the prophet Ahiyakun. The rest of the events in Jeroboam's reign, including all his wars and how he ruled, are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Israel. Jeroboam reigned 22 years, and when Jeroboam died, his son Nadab became the next king. Now what did, now what did the prophet say about all Jeroboam's sons? They were going to what? What do you think is going to happen to King Nadab? He's going to die. God was not going to have it. And I want to encourage you in this. God is not going to have it. When a nation completely turns from him, he doesn't just turn his eyes and tells the church it's going to be okay. He wants the church to follow him knowing that God sees exactly what's going on and he is going to bring justice to exactly what's going on. The scripture said, I want you to turn the other cheek so that you can put justice in my hands. You see, we always hear the scripture about turn the other cheek. The rest of the verse says, basically, so that he can have the vengeance. He says, don't avenge yourselves, let me avenge you. The power of turning the other cheek is not just about humility. It's putting it in God's hands. So when you start to hear things coming against God in this time, it's not necessarily a time for you to come against it in anger and try to get even. It's time to turn the cheek, let them walk in their ignorance, because just like God took care of Jeroboam, He's going to take care of the stuff going on in America. He's going to take care of the stuff going on in the world. But he needs people who are going to follow him even if it looks like he's not moving. Because the moment Christians start to feel like God's not moving, they panic and start strategizing and start setting up what I like to call golden calves. I believe some golden calves are what we call revival. Because we'll set up a tent, call it revival, because we want to make people feel good about the fact that everything is falling apart. You know what true revival is? It means reviving something. True revival means that things are starting to come back to life on the road to complete restoration. And the easiest way to make people feel good about the fact that they're not changing anything is to create a golden calf called revival to give you three nights of encouragement so that you'll stay in your posture of not doing anything. Is that too much? So Nadab becomes king in the midst of all this golden calves and you know, the, the, the reign of Jeroboam. He don't last. It was prophesied. And then we come later on to this king called Ahab. Remember, seven kings. Okay? You got Jeroboam, Nadab, and then finally king number seven, Ahab. Okay? Well, in 1 Kings 16, it says this about Ahab, verse 29. Ahab son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38... Are y'all getting the, the context? Began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. 
He reigned in Samaria 22 years, but Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. Now, that was the same word given to Jeroboam. And look what happened to him and his family. And I don't know if they just ain't reading the history books. And you, you laugh, but what did verse 19 say? This is all recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Israel. Later on, King Asa gets on the scene, and he's doing even worse than Jeroboam. Hmm. All these kings walked in some sort of wickedness, following Jeroboam's pattern. But King Ahab was distinguished. It says he was the worst. Watch in verse 31. As though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel. Dang. That's what some people say behind the backs of weddings. <laughs> no one knows anything about Jezebel at this point. Jezebel is this, this woman that Ahab just had to have. He married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbel of the Sidians, and he began to bow down in worship to Baal. Well, first, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. And then he set up in a Asherah pole. Now, remember, God hated what was going on. And here Ahab, in his genius, let's do it again. Not too far off from what's going on in our nation. Okay? Let's just do the thing that never worked before to see if we can get people to follow it. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. Now, that's a reputation. There's something about Baal. Baal was a fertility god. And Baal was also the god of the rain and the dew. That was what, what, what it was. So they were giving Baal, remember, fertility god, god of rain and dew. So they're giving Baal, this false god, all the worship, giving him credit for life and life-giving things. Everything came from Baal, and the stuff needed for life also came from Baal. Baal's fertility god. We all existed in Baal. Baal gave rain and dew. We need the rain and dew to sustain our crops. They're giving worship to Baal for everything. I believe there are actually many types of Baal worship around us today. What's Baal worship? When you give something credit for life other than God. We give credit to so many things for life-giving things, and we never give it to God. That is society setting up Baal worship without us even knowing it. And it looks good because demons don't present themselves as, as horrible things, they disguise themselves, as the Bible says, angels of light. The most demonic things look the most appetizing to the world. And because they don't know God, they choose it not because they're trying to worship demons, but because it looks good. Baal worship is basically the idea that all roads lead to God. Because you replace the life giver with anything else giving that thing credit for life other than the idea that all life exists in God. And King Ahab is introducing the worship of Baal who used to worship Yahweh. And the worship of the Asherah pole to worship Asherah, one of the three goddesses of the Canaanites. So these kings were intentionally driving the people away from Yahweh to their gods to gain allegiance to man. Y'all seeing how it's working? And in setting up all of these gods, he starts by marrying a woman who was a daughter of King Ethbaal. Ethbaal means with, guess what? Baal. And the name of the daughter... Jezebel, did I just go southern? <laughs> that was a de demon coming out of me. Jezebel, the name of the daughter Jezebel 
actually came from a cult cry, meaning, where is Baal? Her father was, what? With Baal. Jezebel's name meant, where is Baal? So her husband marries, where is Baal? And the answer to where is Baal was, let's set up altars for Baal. And Jezebel was about taking away the worship of any god but Baal. All roads lead to heaven. It's not a new concept. It's actually a concept that Jezebel loved. And Baal, the idea of anything goes, is exactly the strategy of Satan. I don't care what you worship, just as long as it's not Yahweh. And that is exactly what's happening today in our society. They're not trying to take away any other God but the one labeled Jesus. They're not trying to prevent anyone from worshiping except the, the Christians. It's exactly what Asa did all over again. Essentially, the world is trying to find God, and Jezebel has worked its way into this nation by saying, you worship anything else you want, but do not worship Yahweh. And now, in our nation, if you claim to be a Christian, you're looked at as the most horrible, hateful person in the world when our belief is actually the one with the most love that people don't want to accept. So literally, in the days of Elisha, it's the day we're living in. And that's why it's so important that we're going to get into this because I believe that we are going to learn how to fight correctly in this day just like Elisha did in that day. This just gets me jacked up. So God is troubled with the people. And all of a sudden, God does something to the nation of Israel. And he does it through the word of someone who loves God and worships God, a man named Elijah, a nobody that God starts to use. I love how God raises up the overlooked to shift nations. Raised up David, Joseph, Moses, now Elijah. I mean, let's not forget about Jesus. Your greatest influence will come from a life of seeking without compromise. You want to be set up to shift this nation? We've got to get hidden and let God take us to a place to be positioned for shifting it. Elisha was a nobody. He just came on the scene and all of a sudden God uses this man to do something incredible. What's cool, Jezebel, remember it means where is Baal? You know what Elijah means? Yahweh is my God. The answer to the nation of where is that God was, here is this man who stands for God. You know what the answer to this nation is? Our name needs to become not searching for God, but we stand in the one true God. And the way our name becomes we stand in the one true God is to stop compromising and make people feel good about their sinful lives. That's why the church is becoming ineffective, because there is a split going on. And the split's going to be, do you stand for God or do you stand for Baal? Are you identified as knowing your God or trying to find one? In a day when the government supported the worship of Baal, Elijah's very name was rebellious to the government. Where are you? When people ask your stance on homosexuality, when people ask your stance on, 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 on who to vote for, when people ask your stance on what do you do in this situation, who do you stand for? Because there's a place where you can stand for your God or you can stand for your belief and your culture. I hear that crap all the time. Well, that's just my culture. Forget about your culture. We're supposed to bring all cultures into one kingdom culture. And we all may be doing things a little different. That's okay. There were 12 tribes who all looked a little different, but they were all unified. Unity is not about looking the same. 
It's about knowing who we stand for. Okay? How are you known? Does truth speak at the mention of your name or are you known by something else? When people think of you, do they think of God or do they think of something else? Because when Elijah came on the scene, they recognized exactly who he was by his name. And this was a crucial time in Israel's history. The worship of God was almost completely eliminated in the northern kingdom. The land was covered in Baal worship. Kings were proud, greedy. They only cared about themselves. So Elijah comes, and the first thing he says is not, hey, how you doing? He says probably the most offensive thing to them. 1 Kings 17, verse 1. When Elisha, who was from Tishbe and Gilead, told King, now Elisha, who was from Tishbe, told King Ahab, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew and no rain during the next few years until I give the word. In other words, it ain't going to rain till I say it's going to rain. He didn't say, hello, king. He goes up to the king and says, I, as surely as the Lord of God lives, the God, I, I don't serve your God. I don't worship Baal. I don't need your permission. I'm not asking you about the weather. I don't need your weather forecast. I'm telling you, in the name of the God that I serve and you hate, it ain't going to rain. Dang, Elijah. Now remember, Baal wasn't only known as a God of life, but as a God of life-giving things. What were the things that Baal gave? Rain and dew. So Elijah says, I serve God, and on his behalf, I'm directly speaking against your false God. And the rain and the dew you get from him, it ain't coming till I say. <laughs> the dew speaks a drought. On behalf of God over the next three and a half years. How did he have such a level of authority? Because I'm thinking, I would love to be able to go to the government. You know, and say, oh, y'all looking for, you know, freedom? Y'all looking for rain? It ain't going to rain until I... I would love to get to that level. I would love to be able to have the authority to walk in a room and say... Oh, I can tell you exactly why there ain't no unity in here. I see it here, 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 and there ain't going to be no unity until I say there's unity. I, I would love to be at that place. Who, I mean, would y'all? How did Elisha have that level of authority? Well, James talks about it in James chapter 5, 16 through 18. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was a human, just like we are. Yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. And then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and earth began to yield its crops. How do you walk in that level of authority? He says, You've got to be a righteous man who gives earnest prayers in order to have great power and produce wonderful results. How do we become righteous? The blood of Jesus. How do you get your prayers earnest? Throw that scripture back up there, please. In order to have earnest prayers, you confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that we can be healed. Healing does not come from confessing sins to God. You confess sins to God for forgiveness. Healing is the process of confessing to each other and praying for each other. It's another support of the idea of the church. You can't do life alone. 
And if you really want to get down to why my prayers aren't working, maybe it's because you don't know how to confess and pray with your brethren. But even the church has embraced this lie of do church alone. Well, if you do that, you're preventing your prayers from being earnest because you have no one to confess and do life with. Is this too much? You need the church. He set it up. Elijah was ordinary, but his prayers were earnest. And you've got to confess your sins to each other, and you've got to pray for each other. The issue in the church is that no one wants to trust people with their baggage because we love to label them as bad. We are not that house. Because I can tell you, if you ever want to have a confession with me about my sins, you're going to think I'm unqualified to preach. No one's perfect. But here's where the church has got it wrong. The reason you confess your sins is not for the other person to say, it's okay and you can just do what you need to do. You confess your sins for the accountability to move out of them. And as you move out of them, you are in an earnest posture of seeking rather than in a standstill saying you believe in God, yet you do everything that's against his name. Is this? Okay. Maybe your prayers aren't working because you haven't been healed and made whole as a result of no community for confession and prayer. I want to read verse 1 again from 1 Kings 17 in, a, in the New King James Version. It says, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead say to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I, who do you stand for? There shall be no dual reign these, these years except in my word. Elisha, Elisha said, I stand before God. That's who I stand for. That's kind of funny how we're in a nation where what you stand or kneel for says everything. Didn't even realize it till right now. He says, I don't stand for Baal. I don't stand for Asherah. I don't stand for King Ahab. He says, I stand for God. Elisha is revealing where his strength comes from. How? He's giving God the credit for the why behind his words. What was his words? No rain. Well, why is he able to say it? Because I stand with Yahweh. Because remember, James says Elijah was an ordinary man just like us. Elisha wants to make sure that he doesn't get worshipped or glorified because of his words. He wants to make sure that the one he stands for gets the glory for the drought. What do you mean get glory for drought? Isn't drought a bad thing? It, drought was the evidence of where the true authority was in the nation. Because it was raining and they were getting dew. And they were getting rain. Well, who was, where was the dew and the rain coming from? God. But who were they giving credit for? Baal. So God's like, uh-uh. Mm-mm. Elijah, I got a word for you. That's how God works. He says, I have made you my vessel to communicate my word. But we don't know how to communicate his word because we don't half the time stand for him when we need to. And we're not confessing to each other to grow out of the places of confession, walking into a holy life. If you confess something to someone, whether it be me or someone in this room, it is not to make you feel bad. It's to say, I'm with you, hand by hand, hand in hand, step by step, we're going to walk out of this and see the victory. That's what the church is supposed to do. But half the people who used to stand for God have walked away from the church because of idiot leaders who don't know how to love people in their wrong places. You want to know why? Because they're focused on building their kingdom. Is that too much? 
Because I can tell you, this whole thing, this movement going on, this ain't mine. I do stuff sometimes that I don't like to do. And I've made decisions in this house that I didn't necessarily want to do because I didn't like the decision that God was trying to do. But you know what happened when we made the decision? I grew. And the word spoken over me for whatever is going to happen, it, the word over two 10-year periods was that people were going to fall out in your shadow. And what that, what that means for me is that what's going to happen in this house, you're never going to get credit for because you're not going to be seen. The shadow cast is the people who are picking up the vision and running with it, and, it, it, and it's, it's going to be the only thing we can give glory to is not a good preacher, but God himself. We can't be building our own kingdoms. We can't be building our own houses. We have to build his. And that's, Elisha, that's what Elisha was standing on. I'm standing on him. Do people know him? Do people know you because of the great things you do? Or do they know you as someone who does great things on behalf of God? Elisha even says, as surely as he lives, he's telling all these people, you think you can cut him off and make him ineffective, but make no mistake, the Lord of God of Israel, he lives. He said, as surely as my God lives. He says, nation, I don't care what you think you've done to shut the mouth of my God. My God is alive and your God ain't a God. Why are people so worried if they truly believe that God lives? I don't know what's going to happen to this nation. There's horrible things going on. Your God is alive. I don't know what to do. Everything's going under. Gas prices are going up. And now we have to have an ID to vote. But you don't have to have an ID to do this and do that. Why don't, your God's alive. But because you don't see the evidence of his working, you doubt who has the authority. You want to know how to stand really firm in unprecedented times? Look at Ephesians 6.13. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you'll be able to resist the enemy in a time of evil. Look at this, though. Then after the battle, you'll be standing firm. Who do you stand for? When it's hard to stand for him, put on the armor. Well, I don't know what to believe. Well, there, well, there there's truth. Is this making sense? Now, Elisha, he just calls on a drought. No dew, no rain. In the name of the God that says the southern kingdom of Judah was trying to drive out. The southern kingdom of Judah was trying to eradicate the idea of Yahweh God. And Elijah shows up and said, in the name of the God that you don't believe in, it ain't going to rain. Which means because he came up against a national movement, his life was what? In danger. Elijah's life was in danger, and there was a great threat to the northern kingdom of Israel because it made the people mad. How dare you come here and tell us what's going to happen? So in verse 2 of 1 Kings 17, it says this, Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook near where it enters the Jordan River. God is well aware of the consequences in the natural realm when you have to take a stand for him. He's well aware of it. So he tells Elijah, go hide. Go get hidden. What word has he given our house over this past two years? Stay hidden. Because when you start to come against things... <clears throat> There, the enemy is going to come at you. And I need you to get hidden until you're ready to face the enemy head on. So let me just give y'all a word for this house. 
We're supposed to stay hidden until we're all ready to move forward marching in unity. That's, that's, what, that's the word. That's to stay hidden. Some of y'all can't make it through a Monday morning work day. And you expect to take on Satan himself? Y'all laughing because y'all know I'm talking truth. I'm talking about a body that is so standing in God that nothing moves us. Nothing. Not your boss, not the conversation at work, not your empty pocketbook, nothing. Is this okay? Look what happens. He tells Elijah, go get hidden. God was about to teach Elijah the value of the hidden life. Elijah had just become a famous enemy of King Ahab. Why was this nobody a threat? Because he said a word and the rain stopped. Why? They were going to depend on their God for the next three and a half years who was the God of rain but couldn't bring rain. Kind of like people who have made freedom to choose their God yet they're still lonely. See, we make these gods and they don't come through with fruit. So what the nation is doing is making more gods. They're searching for life when there's only one life giver. So God says, Elijah, I want you to get hidden. In other words, get alone with me where you can't be distracted and you have to learn how to depend on me and me alone. He says, go hide by the Kareth brook. Kareth comes from a Hebrew word meaning to cut away or cut off. Elijah, I'm calling you to great things in the name of my kingdom. You want to stand for me? Go to the place where I can get you alone so I can cut some stuff off of you. Because Elijah took the first step. Spoke a big word. It was easy to stand before him when God said do it. But now God's like, I'm going to bring you to a place where you've got to completely depend on me. Look at verse 4. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you. For I've commanded them to bring you food. He says, Elisha, I know you're capable of going wherever and getting whatever. Okay? Elijah could have went somewhere and got food. Right? But he says, I want you to get to a place to drink from that brook and eat what the ravens bring you. I no longer want to depend on your way and your strategy. I want you to depend on me to providing your need in a season of being hidden. Many times we try to get our sustenance from things God did not intend for you at the time. But you don't stand in him, you stand in yourself. You see, Elisha was used to eating all these clean things. Because he was a very religious man. He loved God. But now, look what God does. Elisha depended on clean things, and now he says, every piece of food that you're going to eat is going to come from the beak of an unclean animal. You've learned to depend on the religious system of eat clean, but now you're going to depend on the thing that goes against your system. You've depended on your way all your life. Now I'm bringing you to a place where you've got to depend on my way and it looks rebellious to yours. It even looks ungodlike. Because to Elijah, godly was clean. And now God says, you're getting it from the unclean. His traditional ideas, clean and unclean, were about to be cut off. Elijah was being taught about the provision of God instead of law. And yet half of the people who say they stand in God won't receive messages from unclean vessels. 
You look at someone who's got everything wrong and you say, I can't receive from you. Who the heck do you think you are? I didn't want to say heck. God will use anything or anyone so that our dependence is on him even when the strategy itself doesn't seem like him. We read all through the Bible about going forward into the, 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 the wars and the battles and taking armies of 300 and marching around walls and now a new strategy, go hide. And eat animals that I don't say are worthy to eat. God simply says, will you stand in him when the way seems off? Will you stand in him when the world has come up with a new standard? The church has a standard. The church has a standard. You can talk about the super traditional standards of the pew and the altar and the hymns, but let's talk about the contemporary standard. You can't preach more than 35 minutes. Because people don't want to listen to you. That's because they don't like truth. We got to make sure our services are 90 minutes on the dot. So that people can plan their lunch. Well, if you provide them food, they ain't going to be hungry. In the moment anyways. But you see what the contemporary church has done? Let's come up with this system to make everything easy. And then when God says do something hard, no one knows how to have faith to do it. Look at what happens in verse 5. So Elisha did as the Lord told him. Camp beside Kareth Brook, east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. Every morning, every evening, the Lord provided through an unclean animal just as he promised. Elisha was standing for God in front of the enemy, and now he's being taught to stand in God when he had to trust for a miracle, which we'll find out he needed to learn this trust for what God was about to call him to do. He had to trust God for what God was about to ask him to do. And speaking of trust, look at verse 7. But after a while, the brook dried up. Wait, hold on. You, God, you, you tell me to drink from the brook, and now the, the brook ain't got water. The brook dried up because there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. Why did the brook dry up? Because God told Elijah to speak, it ain't going to rain. Imagine being Elijah. God, I call for a drought, and because of the drought, I'm thirsty. The one thing he depended on for water was now drying up because of the very thing he was told to prophesy about. There are many things we are given that seem to dry up sometimes. Relationships, finances, lots of different things. Why does God let these things dry up? We can't trust in the provision of the brook. We have to trust in the one who brought us to the brook. He could not trust in the water. He had to trust that God would provide. What happens in church is we trust in the system and not the life giver of the system. And when the system fails you, we leave God. Because you never actually trusted in God. You trusted in the system called the assembly. You trusted in an imperfect man that you deemed as perfect and holy. Who do you stand for? Do you stand for God? Or do you stand for the thing that's actually become the, gold, the golden calf, the idol in your life? You trust the pastor more than God, so you never speak to God. You want to have 25 meetings with the pastor in a week.
That's where the church has gotten to. We don't know how to trust in him because we trust in our systems. And when the system couldn't work anymore because the government said shut down, everyone listened and we didn't know what to do. What do you really stand for? Think about the disciples, the apostles, waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. They waited 50 days. You know, we call it Pentecost, but they didn't have a word for what was going on. They, they just waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. They got hidden in the upper room and waited on God. Because they didn't trust on Pentecost Sunday. They trusted in God. And now we see that as Pentecost Sunday. But what, what, is, can we, what does the church do? I can't wait for Pentecost Sunday because the Holy Spirit is going to pour out. It should be happening every time we gather together. Why are you making that the goal? That's the system, you blind idiots. Sorry, I'm not, but... What are we depending on? Oh, it's Easter or first fruits. God's going to do something special. There's going to be more people coming into the room because of Easter. They're not coming for God. They're coming for Easter. But we're depending on those systems. And now they're starting to dry up. And it ain't working anymore. Why? Because God's saying, what's your name? Are you my son? Are you my daughter? Or are you depending on everything that I don't even like anymore? Is this speaking to anyone? And it really shows how much Elijah's learning. Because look... Look in verse 1 again of 1 Kings 17. Elisha, who was from the Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain until the next few years, until I give the word. You know what that means? When he was thirsty, it would have been real tempting for him to do what? Give the word. But he didn't. Because he didn't trust on, I give the word. Who is, he, who is he learning to trust on? He could have said, let it rain. Let it rain. Let it rain. Open the floodgates. Let it rain. When he saw the water drying up, but he didn't. He trusted in God, not himself. And some of us don't know how to trust. And when the situation starts to look dry, we panic we start to look to ourselves and scrambling to make stuff happen. And we start strategizing and having roundtables. And how do we make this happen? We need to learn about a very simple thing, depending on God and not the thing that God provided. And all Elijah could do at this point was wait on the Lord. And when you wait on the Lord, 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says this. It's the last thing I got. Be on guard. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous and be strong. Because he's not going to fail you. He knows your every need. He knows everything that you can't see. He knows exactly why the book's drying up. Do you really trust him when everything seems to be going away? Because we're going to see next week that in the need of water, when the book dried up, God had a next step for him. And a lot of us never see our next step because we're scrambling trying to figure out why the book's drying up. Church, attendance is going down and we scramble around trying to figure out, let's get attendance back. But what if God's just saying, I'm getting the remnant for him. You know, 
Why do we, we focus on what we call the issue or the need? Th think about what the church does. The church needs more money, so we get really creative and have a giving series and then have a giving campaign after it's done. Instead of trusting in God. We, we try to strategize. for, And you know what God says? Break bread together. Love each other. Pray with each other. Confess your sins to each other. And for some reason, that's never what we go to. We create an event. We create a cause. We do another thing. And God's like, you're depending on the brook. Depend on me. You see, in these days of Elijah, there was so much evil going on. False gods being prostrated before the people. People looking for new ways to do everything. And here comes a man who has simply learned to do one thing. I stand in my Lord. And nothing else and no one else. And even when it seems like God has turned his back, I'm still standing in him. Church, who do you stand for? If we're going to move forward in this day, we have got to be secure in depending on him and not necessarily the things he brings to us. He brought Elijah to the brook. He brought the food by the ravens, but he didn't say trust in the brook or trust the ravens. He said, you're standing for me, and I'm going to teach you how to stand even more. And I believe when we learn how to do that, we are going to be given tremendous authority and breakthrough because we're no longer about us gaining the authority. We're about the nation knowing who we stand for. I say we go for that. I say we run for I'm depending on God. I'm standing in God. Nothing is going to move me, and everything about my life is going to give him glory. And that's how we're starting out the days of Elijah. Who do you stand for? Amen? Amen? Let's stand. Can we give God praise? I want to encourage you all just to leave asking that one question, maybe with your friends, your family as you go home. Are we depending on God in all things? Or are we depending on the thing that God gave us? I guarantee you it will be the most freeing conversation you've ever had. So, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We know that we can depend on you. You never fail us. You never forsake us. So we're no longer leaning on things that we consider more sacred than you. We're not making revival an idol. We're not making church an idol. The only thing we want to worship is you and you alone. Take us there. We want to be known as the people who stand for Yahweh. Uncompromising and believing that you are the only one that provides. Strengthen us, Lord. Help us to depend on you so that a true awakening of who you are sweeps the church, therefore sweeping this nation. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And it's in your name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.